So good morning to everyone that's joined us this morning. It's a beautiful, beautiful day, and it's a beautiful day. Uh, for the visitors who don't know me, my name is Sean, my wife and Chantal. We lead this congregation. We have the great privilege of leading a, an amazing group of people in a, in a beautiful part of the world. So if you're visiting this morning, we want you to know that you are most, most welcome here with us. Um, and uh, today we get to celebrate the conclusion of a very significant week in the life of every Christian believer. Um, this week we've observed as uh, Jesus would have come into Jerusalem and he would have come into the holy city. Uh, we thought on Friday about his death and, and what that means to us. And this morning we get to celebrate the resurrection um, and that's something that's not only supernatural in that a man rose from the dead, came back to life again, but also that all mankind actually came back from the dead through that act. And that the power of sin and death, and even as the words have come through today, there's been a sense of the Lord just drawing people unto himself and saying, I want to I set you free, even as I was set free. But I think sometimes if we just focus on the four days or the three days, we can sometimes lose a true appreciation of what it meant for all of us, what it meant for you and what it means for me. So for us to be able to appreciate the ending, we need to go back to the very beginning. And our drama that we're going to talk about, our true life drama that we're going to talk about, it's not a story that's made up in a book of fables, but it's the, it's the gospel, it's the truth. But it starts about 6,000 years ago when a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, who were immaculately conceived by the very hand of God. No mother, no father. Conceived and just made from nothing. And they were given dominion. They were given perfect union with the Lord. They walked with Him in the cool of the day. And He put everything under their feet. They had dominion of everything. There was nothing that separated them from God and there was nothing that separated God from them. This was creation in its most perfect illustration. And then one day, a serpent arrives on the scene and he comes and he starts to, to sow distrust and division. And he manages to convince them that all that they've been given is actually not enough. It's not sufficient. This outrageous blessing, this beautiful, uninterrupted communion with the living God is just simply not enough. And in a moment of weakness, rebellion, and selfishness, Eve succumbs. And she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one instruction, the one safety net, not restriction, but safety net that the Lord had put on them. And everything changed in a moment. This is a very significant moment. And what follows is the entry of sin into the world. And the first thing we start to see amongst them is this blame shifting. Well, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. So he's not actually even blaming the woman. He blames God himself. And then the woman goes, no, but Lord, it's, it's the snake. It's the serpent. He deceived me. 
And there's this blame shifting. And in a moment, this beautiful pure union between man and God is completely obliterated. And we have this he said, she said scenario. And sin enters into the world. And it actually doesn't take very long to escalate. Things start to move really quickly. And what's interesting is that in the very first generation, in the next generation of Adam and Eve, brother kills brother and murder enters the world. In the first generation. And it just escalates and escalates and escalates from there. To the point where the very God that created man in his image has to send a flood to come and cleanse the earth. Because the people on earth are so far beyond redemption that they don't even have the ability to repent anymore. How far did we fall and how quickly did we get there? That God looked at the world and saw, can they still be saved? And he went, they can't. There's a family and I'm going to take them and I'm going to restart everything through them. And he sends this flood and it cleanses the earth. And we feel like maybe there's the new start. But it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. And all of a sudden, the world is once again overcome by death and destruction. There's rape. There's abuse. There's mayhem. It's just, it's chaos again. We see slavery. We see cruelty. And there's a complete departure from anything that resembled the peace and godly order that we were created for in that garden. We see people who should be worshiping God starting to worship idols made of hands, sorcery, witchcraft, man trying to continually make himself God, even build towers to reach up to the very heavens themselves. We see man lording it over his helper woman. We see woman grasping for and trying to grab and usurp the power that was given to man. We see children turning against parents and we see parents actually sacrificing their own children on altars to idols. Things are not going well. It's not looking good. Evil seems to be triumphing over darkness. The world seems to be just spiraling into death and destruction. And I'm sure those that are holy are sitting going, where is our help going to come from? And then one day, help does come. The one that was prophesied over about, the one who was determined before the foundations of the earth that he would be sent to come and to, to, to cleanse us of our sins gets born in a manger. And let's read about this together in Luke 2, verse 6 to 11. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you the good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, one who is, the Christ, who is Christ the Lord. 
Our hope is born. Christ Jesus comes into the world and the beginning of our eternal destinies is starting to be renewed and changed again. But it's so interesting for me that he didn't come with any pomp and ceremony. There was no trumpets announcing his arrival. He didn't choose to be born into our era where there could have been paparazzi taking photos and tweeting and twitting and Instagramming. He didn't choose this time. He chose humility and was born in an inn because there was no place for the Savior of the world. That's how he came into this world. He received no honor. He received no glory. But he was born and the story of our redemption starts. And then this man, this Jesus, our Savior, our Christ, starts to walk the earth. And he walks in the, on this earth every bit man and every bit God. And he starts to go through the temptations and all of the trials that we as human beings have faced and will still face. Yet he never sins. He never falls short. He never steals. He never cheats. He never lies. He never kills. He never rapes. He never abuses. He never disobeys his parents or dishonors his leaders. He is perfect while we are not. He takes a group of men, not special men, and he changes the world with them. He starts to preach the good news. He starts to go to the world and say, I am he. I am the one that's come to reconcile man to God. And he starts to show them who he is. He, he performs signs and wonders like we read about, like Trevor shared with us. He gets to the men that he teaches. He teaches them how to do these same things. He does all these things to confirm to you and to me who he is. He lives this life of honesty and kindness and mercy. And he teaches others to do like he does. And how do they repay him? How do we repay him? He gets betrayal and torture and death. He gets betrayed by one closest to him for a few silver coins. Has anyone here ever been betrayed? How did that feel? It felt like your heart was being ripped out and then stamped on the floor. The one who loved him, the one who, who said, on this rock, I will build my church, denies him three times when he saw, I will die for you. That's the emotional stuff that he had to carry. But then he's brought before the, the, the officials and he's ridiculed, he's tortured, he's spat on. He's made to carry his own instrument of death. Let's read what it says in John 19, verse 1 to 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That's not with the little whip that you buy on the side of the road. It had bones and it had glass and it had all sorts of stuff that was put into the end of it. It had seven tails and they would whip and as it would whip, it would dig into the back and it would pull out skin. It would pull out flesh. 
and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and pushed it in, and put it onto his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. They took this crown that they'd taken time and intentionality to put together and they put it on his head and they shoved it in that the blood would have been running down his face. It would have been excruciating. They came up to him and they ridiculed him. They said, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. And they struck him with his hand, with their hands. They beat him. John 19, verse 17 to 18. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place they called uh, the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. You know, they say that Jesus' body was beaten beyond the recognition of a man. He was beaten so severely that people couldn't even tell who that person was. And if we read in Isaiah 52, 14, it tells us this. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the, that of the children of mankind. Can you imagine that he looked like a pulp? And apologies if I'm being graphic, but I need you to see the great price that was paid this is not a fairy tale story. This is the real life story of someone who was, a, who was a son and a friend. And he gets beaten and beaten and put on the cross. And it wasn't simply death, it was punishment. They humiliated him. There was rage. It was brutal. And there were actually those that, that studied, that, that dedicated their lives to the study of God. These are men that would call themselves righteous and they are the ones that are crucifying their own Jesus, their own Messiah, their own King. They don't even know that it's Him. For those that were following Him, there would have been tears and sadness and trauma and anguish like never before. It was the death of purity and innocence in its purest form. It was violence, it was chaos, it was blood. There would have been screaming and wailing and shouting. There would have been madness. Guys would have been drunk with bloodlust. There would have been fear amongst his disciples. This is the Messiah, he's dying. How can he die? He's our king, he's, our, he's the one who will save us. There would have been heartache and hopelessness. And if the story had ended there, how depressing would it have been? How hopeless would we not have all felt? But that's not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. Amen. So let's read in Mark 16, verse 1 to 7. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I love that. That is faith. They don't even know how they're going to get into the tomb to adorn his, his body with, with spices, but they're going. We're going. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You see, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And I love that piece of scripture. There's just so much in it, it's so rich. But I love that he says there, go and tell the disciples and Peter, the very one who denied him three times. And he mentions him by name. Go and tell my disciples and Peter. Go and tell my disciples and Rob. Go and tell my disciples and Charles. Go and tell my disciples and Sean. Isn't it amazing? And we all need that moment. Every single person on this planet, never mind in this church, need that moment where we come to the realization and the revelation that He is risen. Jesus is alive. And can you imagine what these ladies must have experienced? Just a couple of days, 72 hours before, they are in absolute agony. Their hearts are ripped. And they walk in and the man says, he's not here. He's alive. He's gone. Go and tell. Can you imagine the joy, the excitement, the, the, almost the unbelief? And maybe there's some of us here this morning, you don't know Jesus. You've never had that revelation that he's alive. You've heard the stories in Sunday school one day when you were small, but it's never been real to you. He's never been your Jesus. He didn't die for you. He died for everyone else, but he's never died for me. And I want to say to you this morning, as that angel said to those ladies, that Jesus is alive. He is risen. And all the darkness and all the despair and all of the sin that I've spoken about in that moment was destroyed. It's blotted out. It's as if it was never there. And I pray that we would be those that would Realize that one day, it was a word that came out. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I, I, I don't know whether you, I entreat you, I beg you, let it be this side of eternity. Would you bow your knee in this life, repent and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord before there's no time left? Because you will do it one day. Rather do it now. Rather do it now. Why did he have to die? And what does his resurrection mean for us? Well, through his death, one for all, we were reconciled to God. Our every debt, our every transgression forgiven, paid for, in full, and our union with God restored. This, this would be enough. The forgiveness on its own would just be enough. The feeling of relief that, oh, I'm free. But he doesn't even choose to stop there. He then goes on to win victory over sin and death itself. Let's read in Revelation 1 verse 18. And the living one, 
I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Isn't that amazing? This is in Revelation. So we've shot ahead, which is in the video that we saw there at the beginning, the music video. We've got John on the Isle of Patmos who gets taken up and he sees a vision of Jesus. He sees a vision of the one. He's in heaven and all these things are playing out before him. And he's speaking and, and Jesus says to him, I am the living one. I was dead. He's confirming the resurrection. I'm alive. He's confirming the resurrection. I'll forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And that intrigued me. It intrigued me. Why does he say I hold the keys to death and Hades? What's that about? So as I started to research it, I saw that there was actually, it was a custom for the kings of old. When their city had been invaded and overtaken, there was a, it was customary for them to take the keys to the gate and to hand it to their, the, the new owner, their conqueror the king, as a symbol of a transfer of ownership and a symbol of a transfer of power within that city. And I love, the, I love the visual. I want you to go with me prophetically on this journey. So, so Christ has died. He's lying in the tomb. And I'm sure Satan's going, yes, boys, we've got it. We've got him. We've killed him. He's dead. And the next minute in hell, here comes the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he looks at Satan and he says, I'll take those keys. I'll take those keys. And he comes out carrying the keys, speaking about his rulership, his greatness, his ownership over death and sin itself. And he says to the devil, no more. Do you have control over those things? They're in my charge now. And in that moment, he's taken ownership over yours and my eternal destiny. That even though one day we have all got an appointment with death, unless we get raptured, and I'm not going to go down that because that's a whole nother conversation, but one day we will face death. And you know what? If you're in Christ, you know the one who holds the keys. And we step off here and we're into his glory. I love that picture. Our Jesus holds the keys for death and for hell. I want to finish with the scripture. It's in Romans 5, verse 18 to 20. And as the words have come out this morning, as the Spirit has moved, there's a sense of God wanting to engage with individuals. He's wanting to engage with you personally. And this is talking about, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's Adam and Eve that we read about at the very beginning of our story. The beginning of our story was death and destruction, disobedience, and all of the fruit that would come through Adam into the world. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus this morning, and it's a beautiful resurrection. It means so much to me. It means so much to you if you call yourself a believer in the Lord Jesus. But maybe you've forgotten. Maybe you've forgotten that you too were Adam or Eve, and you had transgressed and your sins were numerous, and they were beyond the ability for you to cleanse yourself. Maybe you've forgotten that Jesus Christ came, lived perfectly in this world and died the death that was due to me and to you. Maybe you've never met him, ever. Or maybe you have met him and actually just he's become a pastime. He's something that I do on a Wednesday night with a couple of people in a community group and then I do it on a Sunday but for the rest of the week, I walk completely unaware of who he is. And I feel I would be doing him an injustice this morning if I told you the story of his death and his resurrection, of how decrepit and how broken we were as people. And I didn't give you an opportunity to put your faith in him this morning. So maybe just close your eyes with me if you won't mind. Father, I thank you for your great sacrifice. I thank you that you say it was your good pleasure to trust Jesus so that he could be a propitiation for each of us, that through him we could be reconciled to you. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for hearts this morning that are here in this place that perhaps have never known you, perhaps have never seen the beauty and the wonder of your resurrection. Hearts that are overcome by anxiety and stress and understanding that they're sinful and there's nothing they can do. But Jesus, you've done it all. So if there's anyone here this morning who's never publicly committed their lives to the Lord Jesus, who's never said, Lord, I bow my knee in this life. I accept your forgiveness. I accept the free gift of salvation that comes through no man that no man can boast. I thank you, Lord, that not only did you die, but you were raised again for me. I want to give you my life. And I ask you to save me. If there's anyone who has not done that, then I want to ask you, just slip your hand up right now, in this moment, and let the Lord come and save you. So that means I'm talking to a room full of believers, those that are saved and that have eternal destiny with the Lord. And I rejoice in that, Lord. I rejoice for every soul in this place. But maybe there is just a sense of we've become burdened and heavy. The pressures and the pain of this life have started to overcome the beauty of the cross the beauty of our salvation, the beauty of the inheritance that we have. Last week we spoke about the pearl of great price. And maybe we've just taken our eye off of that prize. We've forgotten our problems. Maybe it's persecution in your life have started to override the joy that comes in Christ Jesus. And I really feel actually a faith building in me this morning for the Lord to pour out a renewed joy over those 
that are not joyful, over those who have lost the joy of their salvation, who perhaps are not experiencing his presence anymore because it says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. So if you're here this morning and you've just become dry, self-aware, maybe Jesus has just kind of become an afterthought in our lives. Or you just need a fresh touch from him. Then I'll ask you to stand with me. And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to come and do a work in your life this morning. Thank you. Thank you. That the Holy Spirit is going to come and do something in your life this morning like never before. If you're trusting God for an infilling this morning, for something fresh, for something new, why would you be sitting? It's not about responding to me. I don't care if you sit or stand. It doesn't mean anything to me, but it means something to Him and it should mean something to you. If you are needing a touch of heaven this morning, I want to encourage you, please stand. Stand and respond to Him. Respond to the one who gave everything that He had. His blood was poured out for you. Thank you, Lord. I wonder if I could ask you, those, if those of you that are, are seated, don't you just want to gather around those that have, that, have, um, that have stood and just pray for them. Just be spirit-led and pray for them. This is what we do in church. It's not about one ministers and the others listen, but we become one and we pray for each other and we love each other. You just pray. Take your time. There's no rush. There's no rush. Just pray for that person. Prophesy. Trust the Lord for a word. And if you're being prayed for, open your heart to God this morning. Open your heart to Him. And let Him minister to you by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to thank you for what you've done in this place this morning. We want to thank you for life that you've given us through your death and the life that you've given us through your resurrection. I pray that as we go from this place into whatever the rest of the long weekend holds for us, that this morning there would have been something deposited in us of a gratefulness and a gratitude for all that you've done for us. thank you that as we've prayed for those to be filled with the spirit and those to be filled with joy and to have an infilling of you lord i thank you the joy would be our portion as we leave this place this morning the joy of knowing that i i was destined to burn for eternity as a result of my sin but there was another who stood in the way and said i'll take that punishment I'll take on me all of the wrath, all of the anger, all of the justice. And I will bear his shame. May we walk with the revelation in our hearts of the joy that sits. 
before him, he endured the cross. You, sir, and you, ma'am, are that joy. You are that joy. May we walk out of this place this morning with the joy in our hearts. Father, would you be with us in all that we do, in all that we are, in all that we see, in all that we speak. Holy Spirit, would you walk with us daily, every moment. May we live a life that is a pleasing fragrance unto you. Thank you for your resurrection, Lord Jesus. We praise your name. We lift you on high. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ.